0: Heavy Hops is a Scorch Tundra production. You can access all our episodes with detailed show notes and information about upcoming events by visiting scorchedtundra.com slash heavy hops. Be sure to follow us on your preferred social media platform. Subscribe, leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you access podcasts. Thanks for supporting us and enjoy the show.
1: But just going through that process, it was odd. It was a sort of funny feeling of like getting much closer to this person who I just knew very in a sort of a hazy childhood way, being like, oh, this is beer. This is kind of how it's made. This is a bottle. We put a sticker on it that was just a picture of Conrad's site.
0: Welcome to Heavy Hops. My name is Alexi. People find their way into the commercial side of beer through many avenues. Common narratives typically involve an interplay of seeking something different from what the market offered, discovering the joys of homebrewing, finding a new community, and taking a risk with hopes for an independent future. Typically, there's also a horrible boss or a dead-end job involved. None of these are the case for Lauren Mack. Lauren's path has been exceptional and is noteworthy. She's a great-great-great-granddaughter of Conrad Seip, a German immigrant who began brewing beer in Chicago in 1854. The Chicago Fire in 1871, which ravaged much of the city, spared Seip's Brewery, which at its height produced over 250,000 barrels annually and was an innovative force in the industry. It is through the lens of family history and a desire to connect with the past that Lauren founded Conrad Seip, Brewing Company, and our conversation explores stewardship involved in sharing family history with the public, reimagining historic beer recipes and brands, and where this historic brand sits in contemporary beer culture. Check out the episode notes on our website for historic photos generously provided by Lauren. They may help bring some of these historic characters to life. Let's dive and get heavy. Lauren Mack, welcome to Heavy Hops. It's a pleasure having you on the show.
1: It's such a pleasure to be here.
0: I am very fond of history and particularly uh, 19th century history. So what I I studied 19th century social history in college, and I'm really excited for this conversation because it involves a lot of things I'm interested in. (laughs) (laughs) That's so cool. Wow, what a great thing to study. When did you first sort of learn about Conrad's SIPE?
1: Well, I have really known about Conrad my whole life, and that is because Conrad, um, in 1887, bought a piece of property on the shores of Lake Geneva, which is in Wisconsin, and he built a home for his family there, a summer home. I think that Chicago was probably pretty hot and pretty dirty um, during the summer. And so he wanted a place where his family could go and their their guests and friends could go and cool off and enjoy nature. That's such an important part, I think, of life. And he really wanted that for his family. So he built a house and that house um, is still there. And that house was there for my entire childhood and adulthood. I mean, I'm still an adult now. And so I, I always knew of Conrad Sype as being this patriarch, sort of this reason why this great place existed. I, I would go and visit my grandparents who lived very, very nearby and my great grandmother and then great uncle owned the house and were the leaders of it, so to speak. And so I always had Conrad in my general idea of life, but I had no idea as a child how Conrad came to build this house or sort of the beer connection at all. I just knew him as this benevolent ancestor. And it wasn't until later when I learned exactly where, where he came from and, and who he was, which made it a really cool journey journey to get there since I knew about him, but I didn't know very much about him as much as a child knows about
0: really anything. What kind of like sentiment was carried when you were told about him, whether it was like, Anecdotes about this home or about his life. Like what kind of timber was there around him?
1: Definitely the, the concept of sort of a benevolent, good force of sort of our first sort of a Germanness, definitely an idea that he was the first person who came over from Germany. I, I would say just a, a general sense of kindness and warmth. That there was no, and I don't know if I was just blanking out or what, but I don't think, I think my siblings and other families would agree that we just didn't really connect the beer part much in our family. And I've been trying to think about why that might be the case. And we also, the German piece is certainly always there, but it wasn't necessarily emphasized. And I think it's always important to keep it into context, the fact that there were two world wars after he died and the present that really made it so that being a German was not awesome in this country. Um, So I think that may have played a role into it. And I think another thing that played a role is being a beer merchant wasn't necessarily like, I don't think anyone was ashamed necessarily, but I think that it wasn't something that people were really holding up and, and wanting to talk a whole lot about. Now, that is in no way anything that has been substantiated, but I'm just trying to understand more about why we didn't talk as much about the brewing piece. Because it wasn't as if people were trying to ignore Conrad Seip. I think they were just focusing less on the fact that he was very much of a German and very much of a of a beer brewer.
0: It's a double whammy in a sense, right? Because being German in America was a very complicated thing around the time that his brewery closed and during the interwar period, and there was a sizable German population in the city. imagine it was quite complicated. And then of course, like the temperance movement as well. And the prohibition may have maybe wanted family members to distance themselves from some of that. And what you experienced, maybe it was like a carryover of a lot of that in some way.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think that all makes sense. I also think that something that I've really learned is how Germans were not very popular when they were here in the 19th century. As we know from the lager beer riots, they were sort of seen as this loud, boisterous, unpleasant immigrant group. And so I think there was a lot of acculturation at play even before the world wars came around where people were just trying to blend into Chicago life. And I get it. That's, I think, what, what immigrants do is they try and figure out their, their new way in a new world.
0: And I think there was definitely something of that time period because I have family that came to the U.S. in that time as well. You know, they didn't speak their native language at home. There was a lot of suppression of some elements of what the old country was like in favor of, at least for the youngsters, to be uh, assimilated in some way. Almost to the point of not wanting their children to know that language.
1: Exactly. Yeah, that's such a good point. And I think there are many things that they just didn't want to talk about that happened in the old country. Sort of, let's just not think about that and focus on the future, which I certainly respect, but I'm sorry about because I think so much of that cultural richness was lost in many families.
0: Family history was a pretty important part of your upbringing, it sounds like. Huge.
1: I am totally 100% focused on the past. I've always been like that. I think it's just part of my character. And I think that's okay, although I think a challenge of that is is that the, the present is a pretty good place to spend time and the future is as well. So funnily enough, my relationship with Conrad has really helped me embrace the present more. And so I feel like I'm able to very much stay grounded in the past where I feel most comfortable, but I'm starting to feel more willing to accept present and future possibilities as well.
0: Can you elaborate on that a little bit? I think
1: that I just find history so interesting I love how it's such a mix of fact and fiction. We can romanticize things and there's like an endless amount of things to learn from history. And I always had this concept of sort of the the good old days. I'm not necessarily sure where that came from. I think it possibly is because I'm the youngest of six children. And so this idea that all the fun came before me, like on a micro level, just within my family. But then if you think about it with Conrad Seip, like really cool stuff. I mean, he had a really tough time and he also had some really really incredible things happen. And it's fun to think about and talk about and wonder about what people were wearing and eating and doing during a very different time. And I think that's what's so wonderful about living in Chicago. There's so much history and so much that has happened here. So many different cultures blending together that there's just a never-ending field for entertainment if you're someone who likes to, to think about the past and to learn about it. I'm sure a European would say I was ridiculous thinking that Chicago had a lot of history since we're such a relatively young country. But I do feel that's what's so special about looking back is just the ability to, to learn and to try to imagine a different time. And maybe for that reason, understanding where, where we are now even better.
0: I think it's an interesting thing because it all depends on like how you ground your identity, right? Because if we identify ourselves as Americans, we are part of a country that actually has existed for longer than Germany or Italy or most countries in Europe that went through pretty torrid revolutions in the 19th century. That's where the, I guess the role of like sub identities and regional identities carry for a lot of people. So it's very interesting, like identity is a fluid thing in so many respects as far as where we come from and what we sort of identify with changes over time, depending on where we sort of see ourselves in the world.
1: It's such a good point, And it's very arbitrary. I mean, I, I don't think that it's necessarily just because I'm feeling, you know, have learned a lot about my German heritage doesn't mean that I don't have a lot of other kinds of heritage that I can also focus on and learn more about just as, you know, we're all made up of lots of different parts. And so I think it's important not to get too attached to any one thing. And also, you know, heritage doesn't necessarily come from your DNA. It can come from a place that you just think is really cool or that really resonates with you and, and, and your psyche. So I in no way, I mean to say that this has to only be related to where your great-great-great-grandfather came from.
0: Speaking of great-great-great-grandfathers, I hate to be impositional, but I imagine there was some kind of transformation that occurs where someone goes from being a part of oral history within your family to being someone that you're studying in a different way. When did it sort of occur that you wanted to look at this person through maybe like a more academic or methodical approach instead of a oral history approach?
1: I definitely, you know, when you're a child and a teenager, you're just sort of Struggling to survive and figure out who you like, who you are and generally who you want to be. So there's not much time, I think, to have a lot of context for what the world is around you because you're just so focused on trying to figure it all out. And so it wasn't until a, I was old enough to drink beer, (laughs) um, which was 21. And then it wasn't until I was able to start understanding that more people knew about Conrad Seip than I did just as his family member, that he was known. And that's a funny feeling to like, to understand that. I remember when my mom told me that she knew how to ride a bike, I was so absolutely floored. I was like, what moms don't ride bikes. And it's kind of the same thing with this. It's like, what other people know about Conrad Sykes? I'm like, yes. They do. <laughs> People that we're related to have lives outside of us. And I think that really came in sort of my late twenties and, and early thirties. My husband and I were living in Richmond at the time. I was in graduate school and he's always looking for ways to entertain himself when I'm studying, because it's boring when your wife studies all the time. And he's like, you know what we should do? We should we should we should try and recreate one of Sipes' recipes. Cause he was excited about Conrad Saipe as he learned about him. And I was like, Yeah, that sounds like a great idea. Let's go for it. So we had some brewing friends at the time living in Richmond. They now have a a brewery. And we just put some ideas together and came up with what was a pretty good beer. I can't even... It must have been some kind of an ale at that point because I don't think it took 28 days to lager when we made it. But just that process of like going through and I was very tangential to the process because as I said, I was studying all the time. But just going through that process, it was it was odd. It was a sort of funny feeling of like getting much closer to this person who I just knew very in a sort of a hazy childhood way. Being like, oh, this is beer. This is kind of how it's made. This is a bottle. We put a a sticker on it that was just a picture of Conrad's site. And the beer tasted good. I mean, I'm sure there was no reason why it would have been what Conrad had made, but it was sort of in that general direction. I think we would gotten some good Clues. And that was the first time where all of a sudden things started to turn. And I was like, I got I got to learn more about this. What's what's going on here? And what, what would it be like to actually do this? And why did we stop as a family? Why did we stop the Conrad Site Brewing Company? And that is where the academic part really took off, I think would be the spot. And my husband was a journalist at the time. And he just emailed Garrett Oliver because he'd been doing some work in the beer world. And Garrett Oliver, who is the most wonderful person from what I have come Um, to believe, emailed back, which was really nice. And he was just, you know, answered some questions about what we had um, told him about um, Sipes beer. And then he said, you know, I'm gonna connect you with um someone, one of my colleagues in Germany named Horst. And Horst gave us some really excellent tips on what we should think about. And that was when it started to, to congeal, as like, huh, what would this actually look like? What would it be like to make this historic beer? What are the labels that were used? And I think that was my first foray into the understanding about just the absolute generosity and openness of the beer community. Whereas one of the most famous brewers in America was willing to be like, yeah, hey, here's here's what I think. And I just really appreciated that. And it really struck me. And then internationally too, people from Germany are willing to chip in and send their ideas. So I I think that that was where it all started. And it's just been a long time since then and coming, but I've had that same experience again and again, people are just so open and interested and and helpful and
0: nice. That's very certainly telling in terms of Garrett Oliver and folks in Germany wanting to dedicate some time to helping you understand someone in your family and also the beverages that he made that served a pretty sizable community for a long time. It's so interesting to me that a German brewmaster or historian in beer is giving you some guidance on beer that's made in the US. Obviously, there must have been pretty big parallels in terms of the the recipe or at least sort of the ideation of what was made. Just want to know a little bit about what that conversation was like and what you were gleaming from that.
1: Um, I still have the email and I should have pulled it up before our conversation so I could be more specific about it. But it was just really great trying to understand what people were making in Germany around that time. And also it's regionally really significant because one of the questions we had was where did Conrad live? Where did he immigrate from? And he came from outside of Frankfurt in an area called Hessen in a town called Langen, which is very small. Apparently there aren't many sipes in Germany, the name is pretty uncommon and apparently they mostly all come from the Longin area which makes me feel like I am related to anybody named Seip. Anyone who comes up to me is like, hey, I'm a Seip. I'm like, hello cousin. (laughs) Whether it's true or not, I really don't care because hell, we're all related somehow, right? But I say all of that just to say that was something that I found really helpful and interesting and then I also recognize that there is a difference between German brewing and then Germans who come to America. It's the Wild West. They can kind of do what they want and Conrad Seip, I think, did what he wanted. And it's not only what you wanted to brew, it's what you had the materials to brew. They did not have access to two row barley. So they had to figure out how to deal with the six row barley, which I understand from a conversation this weekend is referred to as cattle feed (laughs) in Germany, (laughs) which I think is awesome. But I think that it's important to recognize that this is German American beer. It's not German beer. And that means a lot. It means that this heavily influenced by Germans. They know how to brew beer beautifully, but. It's not Germany, it's America and it's a different
0: environment. Yeah. And there were also some like pretty massive technological changes that occurred in the brewing industry between when Conrad came to the US and when lagering technology and refrigeration and all these things that we associate with making like pretty clean lagers came about. What were some of the things that were interesting when you were finding recipes? or sort of evidence of what he was up to from a like manufacturing standpoint? Like what kinds of things jumped out to you that were interesting?
1: What really jumped out, To me. So, Conrad Seip is a little bit of a unicorn. I mean, most people don't come over as carpenters to America. That was his trade when he came here and end their lives being, you know, some of the biggest industrialists in America. I say industrialists because beer wasn't very much of a huge industry and there were factories that made all this beer. And I think that he, like most people, worked really hard. I also think he was a really good businessman. And I'll get to that in a minute. And he was also just tremendously lucky. And that is so much part of life is just the luck that you just happen to have fall on your head. We can talk more about the Chicago fire, but his brewery was built at 27th and Cottage Grove. And literally half of his competition went up in smoke in 1871. Now that was not lucky for him. He doesn't want his colleagues to have their breweries burned down, but from pure business standpoint, He had a lot of people who were coming to build Chicago that he needed to feed beer to, basically. That's what people were drinking as as water in those days, mostly because it was cleaner. (laughs) So luck, huge thing for Conrad, which I would never discount. Another thing that I think is important is that Conrad was very good at business. And I know other people were doing this as well, but he was very much into advertising, very much into merch. You can find lots of different beer trays and you can find beer mugs and just prolific marketer. The Tide House piece was very much um, a part of his business. He would advertise in like, I don't even know what these terms are because I don't spend a lot of time at the track, but like the pamphlet for like racetracks and gambling. And that's where people were drinking beer. People were drinking beer in the red light district. So he went where people were were drinking beer. And a lot of his labels were are still preserved. I never can pronounce this word, Brewerania, <laughs> um, which is the, you know, the study essentially of, of labels and paraphernalia. They have an incredible amount of resources for what these labels looked like to the degree that they survived. So I would sort of wherever I could just grab those those clues from history to help start. I mean, I just have a real advantage, I think, from a marketing perspective in that I don't have to think up new names, which I think is so hard. And I don't have to think up new images. I can just take the old images and the old names. I guess this means that I'm not very creative. And then try and make them with the help of really fantastic graphic designers and just friends and family who gives lots of good input to make this old imagery new again and appealing to the modern eye. And I'm trying to get to the point that what I mean to answer your question is, is with that, we were able to start kind of honing down. We knew that these were the brands that he had. We knew that the brands, like the labels would say things like made from Bohemian hops. Okay, well that's helpful. We know a sas hop is used in this, in the extra pale in particular. So we had all these hints. We know all of this beer is made with Lake Michigan lake water. That's very easy. It's a pretty key ingredient in beer. And then we also, he, he also leaves other clues along the way. And then we have the magic bullet, which is Doug Hurst in Metropolitan Brewing. And I know we, we can talk about that relationship as it came to be, but that man knows so much about brewing beer in general and so much about 19th century brewing because and he studied at the Siebel Institute which really informed I think so much of his knowledge and so we were able to bring together kind of what I knew and had figured out from just researching and there were things that just are lying around the house (laughs) the odd beer bottle or two and then we also were able to benefit from Liz Garabay's expertise in, in brewing history as well so I think it was really the trifecta of having all these different influences and also just wanting to make a beer that people want to drink now. We don't live in 1854, we live in 2020 at that point, 2021 now. So we got to make something that people are going to want to drink, but that also has some historic significance.
0: There's a lot of things that I want to jump into, but before we talk about some of the relationships that helped you sort of realize the beers that I'm going to drink later today, for people that may not know about Chicago around the Chicago fire and how that really was favorable for Conrad in terms of the market share that he was able to capture, fortunately, but unfortunately, as a result of the fire and what it did to manufacturing. Can you just very briefly just talk a little bit about how many breweries were in Chicago And then after the fire, how many were spared just for like a little bit of scale?
1: Yes, and please pardon me. I'm going to be giving facts that are in no way facts. They're just things that are coming to mind. I'm pretty sure, and Liz Barabay can correct me, and maybe you can correct me, Alexi. I'm pretty sure there were about 12 breweries at the time. And I think six of them burnt up and were not restarted again, including and Sills Brewery, which was one of the very, very first. Conrad was certainly one of the first, but he wasn't the first. And that's really significant when you think about how much beer those breweries would have been producing at the time. Conrad was certainly among before the fire, one of the leaders, but it wasn't until after the fire that he was a national leader in beer production. I do want to recognize that not only was it his competition going up in smoke, but there were just so many workers coming to rebuild the city that needed to drink something. And so I think this is where you see Schlitz really coming onto the scene. Is It was very altruistic of them to send beer to us. I appreciate that, but it was. Is also a very good business
0: move. Absolutely. In times like that, people are going to recognize opportunities when it's advantageous, right? After the fire and Conrad is able to successfully sort of realize some of the volume ambitions and maybe create new ones, there was a statistic I saw it was 250,000 barrels of production at its height. I mean, I was looking at BA statistics for contemporary breweries just to be able to get some scale of brands that we know today. And that's around what Deschutes annual production. There were no local examples, but Deschutes produced 260,000 barrels of beer in 2020. I mean, that's a brewery with 50 states of distribution and 30 plus years of existence. That's an insane scale. And how much of that was sold in Chicago versus exported, so to speak?
1: It is an insane amount of of beer. It's a lot of fucking uh, beer. (laughs) It's a (laughs) lot of fucking beer. For a girl who's just working hard to sell a half barrel, I can't even think of what that like, it's unfathomable. I think this is another example of where Sype was pretty savvy. Chicago had a huge market. Milwaukee was pumping beer into Chicago because it was such a big market. And Sype was one of the few brewers to ship his beer out of Chicago to look for external markets, which I think was a great idea, especially as the market got more and more saturated before everything went to waste during Prohibition. He, uh, I think, had a patent on a refrigerated boxcar so that he could put his beer on it and ship it out West. And so you'll find Sipes beer. I I don't have good historical record of this yet, but it 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 exists, I'm sure. Well, you'll, you'll find Sipes beer out in the West, like advertised out in the West, especially as they're building railroads. And there's some great quote in some I can't remember the origination of this quote, but basically saying that Conrad's site did more for the temperance movement in the West than any like church group, because instead of drinking whiskey, these you know guys building the railroads can have 4.5 or whatever percent alcohol in a lager beer. Seems like a way better way to go. So I think that was another thing that just really made him so prolific, is that. I don't he was certainly not distributing to 50 states like Deschutes, but he was definitely looking outside for different markets.
0: Yeah, And also kind of I'm imagining this uh, refrigerated car was in some way maybe inspired by like the Pullman car and by the innovations occurring right down the street in the stockyards
1: all these dudes are hanging out. And unfortunately at that time, it really was mostly dudes. And I think it's important to acknowledge that these dudes who did not have wives and daughters and people that were close to them who were women, but so much of business at that time was dominated by men. And that's fine. That's how history was, but I think it's pretty great now that men and women and anybody gets to be part of that business world and share ideas. But yeah, they they were definitely sharing ideas, especially if they were German. It made it even easier because they could speak the same language to each other, which helps
0: Let's talk about some of the folks that you were sort of alluding to that are a part of helping you realize this project today. You and I are both close to Metropolitan Brewery, and that's kind of your home base for the production of these beers. What was it like sort of bringing this idea and this beer to Tracy and Doug? I'm assuming Liz had a role in this as well somehow.
1: Oh yeah, man. It's so funny when you're in different parts of the country, there's, it was never like the whole, I got a guy thing is really very much the Chicago thing. And it's so pervasive even now. And looking back on how this all started, it was very much of that. So Dave DeSimone is the director of the Black Point Estate and Gardens. Black Point Estate and Gardens is SIPES. House, which is now a museum that anyone can go visit. It's awesome. You can take a boat ride to get there, visit the estate, and then take a boat ride back to your car. Um, And he was connected to Liz Garibay, who is the executive director and and founder of the Chicago Brewseum. They were connected through the um, museum, the Field Museum exhibit. I think that Dave loaned some museum-y type stuff to the exhibit. And he said, you should meet this person, Liz Garibay. She's fantastic. So I, of course, reached out to Liz. And yes, Liz is fantastic. Wow. (laughs) I call Liz my beer fairy godmother because she's just such a benevolent force in my life and just a great friend. And she said, I've got some people you need to meet over at Metropolitan. And I said, okay, great. Because when I was speaking with her, I told her about my idea. And I said, you know what I really need to do now is find someone that I can brew my beer for me. And she was like, let's see what you think of uh, Metropolitan. Let's see what Metropolitan thinks of you is what she really meant to say. So we went over and met with Doug Hurst and with Tracy Hurst. And um, I just immediately thought they were fantastic. Obviously, their beer is fantastic, but equally important to that is if you know if you like the people that you would be working with and I just thought they were great I think everyone that's around them is great their whole brewing world feels like the sort of thing that I want to be a part of good people doing good things luckily I think that they thought that I was good enough to deal with too because they said all right let's give this a shot and we decided I was pretty sure that um the extra pale was the beer that I wanted to start with the extra pale pilsner and luckily Doug was really interested in and making that one first as well, which was great because the most we, you know, Doug's blessing is very important if he's the one who's going to be making the beer. And Doug, as I mentioned, just knows so much about brewing techniques, not just now, but in the old days, so to speak, and was able to, I think, recreate. We don't know what what the extra pale tasted like a hundred years ago. And maybe that's good because maybe we can have some artistic license to make it what we want to drink now while really being able to reference the past and some some things that very much were happening in the 19th century. And
0: voila. You're listening to Heavy Hops. We'll have more from Lauren Mack in a moment. This week, I want to use this spot as an opportunity to highlight people who are near and dear to this show. Coordinating and releasing a weekly podcast is a team effort. And these folks are more than just team members. They're family. Espen Wilhelms from Studio Berserk in Gothenburg, Sweden has stepped in recently and has done a fantastic job of handling audio production, mixing, and mastering. If you want to sound as good as his band Lord, consider hiring him for your music or podcast project. Steve Seabode helps me with pretty much everything web design related and has done so since 2001. I cannot recommend his work enough if you're looking for an experienced professional web designer. Sam Cangalosi not only co-hosted this show from its inception, but also handled audio production until recently. He's a busy dude, but you may hear him again on the show in the future. We're hosting an in-person fundraiser for him at Metropolitan Brewing on December 15th. If you're able to attend, we'll see you there. The visual presentation of this show is the work of Chicago-based visual artist and printmaker Bryn Gleason. Her skill, passion, and drive to excel in anything she pursues is inspiring. The encouragement of Jason Ryder, Mikhail Medin, and Axel Vidin were instrumental in getting this show out of my head and onto the internet. Also, a big shout out to Megan Howard, George, Chris, Matt, and everyone who has donated to support this show and Scorched Tundra endeavors. You can join us on the Discord community by donating at the link in the episode notes. Thanks for this moment, and back to our conversation with Lauren Mack. I guess one of the things that I'm always curious about when it comes to revisiting historical items and creating them in like a contemporary senses for a lot of people. And this is where the creativity exists for people like you understated your creativity. I think there's a lot of creativity in what you do. It's just not the creativity that the person that builds the thing makes, you know, this is like a a different kind of creativity. But there's always this interesting sort of I, I view it as tension in a certain way between doing the thing as it was before, recognizing the impossibility of doing it in that way, like impossibility and impracticality of doing it that way. And then, what am I going to do on the other hand today about adapting it? Maybe it isn't necessarily tension, but I view it in that way to where it's a complicated negotiation in certain ways. And how you problem solve that is the creativity, I think. For you in looking back at these things and also project managing this more or less, like what were some of the things that you sort of considered as like the values that had to come from the past and some things that had to be informed with a more like contemporary perspective.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think you're, I think the word tension is a good one because it's true that it's a balance that you can't mess up because otherwise you become Williamsburg and people go to Williamsburg once and they think it's awesome, but they don't generally keep going back every weekend. And Sype's Beer is not about a gray-haired European dude who came over and made a bunch of beer. It's about Chicago. And it's about resilience. It's about immigrants. It's about being together. It's about telling your own story. It's, it's about now. And that's what it was for Conrad. He was just living a while ago. And so I think that sort of like almost timelessness is what I was really trying to hit recognizing that it's really important for us to know where we come from. And I don't mean like, I mean, all of us, we need to know where we come from the good and the bad so that we don't keep screwing up or we try not to keep screwing up and that we also appreciate things that went well and that we should keep doing. And so with the labeling that very much became apparent, like I couldn't just use the old site logo exactly as it was. Because when we read it as 21st century readers, it looks like, it very much reads like leaps because of the way that the cursive has changed. And so people would never really be able to like associate it with an actual pronounceable name. So we had to change the S in the cursive. We had to change the S in the, I'm sorry that I'm speaking about um, logos that it's hard probably to, to conjure up. I wish I could show it to those who are listening, but... We had to change the S in the original logo so that it did not look like one of those woolly bear sort of caterpillars and that it actually looked like differentiated barley stalks so things like that, it was like really cleaning up and modernizing the past labeling while also referencing it and saying that this is a historic beer brand, but it's for people who live in the 21st century and they need to like the way that it looks now. And they they need to keep liking the way that it looks sitting in their refrigerator. And I think then that translates over into the taste. We needed to make a beer that people want to drink now, but we cannot go and add soot to the water so that it would taste like sooty old, like, you know, like Michigan water from 150 years ago, it needed to taste like a beer that you would want to drink now that you could drink and say, huh, I wonder what my ancestor was doing wherever they were in the world in 1870. And maybe they weren't making beer, maybe they were doing whatever people might've done who were your anybody's ancestor at that time. It's It's about trying to get people to think about the past, but also really enjoy the present.
0: That's a great answer. And I think that there's so many different ways that people go about adapting old beer recipes. And it kind of says a lot about their creativity or what they value when you look at what are the things that they chose to grab from the past. Versus the things that can resemble a much more, like, modern take. And if you look at the authenticity argument when it comes to other German styles of beer, there are some very sort of interesting modernizations and derivations of them that you see particularly with, like, Goza and Groszitzki and all those things. But in some way, there are things you have to leave behind because there are sanitary considerations, right? And then there's also just sort of a reason why some historic styles of beer or flavor ideas died. And it doesn't mean that someone between then and now was wrong and killed it. It just means that maybe there was something wrong with it. And people are allowed to be right in between then and now, right?
1: Totally, it's a great way of putting it. It's just things change. And although that's hard for me to accept as someone who's stuck in the past, (laughs) I'm starting to accept it more.
0: This like Williamsburg idea is really interesting because that is a huge risk that you run when you are creating something that is historic leaning in any way, shape, or form. Is that's such a strong like hallmark in what people associate with historic things. And so it's actually like kind of dangerous in some way to do so because people may view it as a trinket or as like a novelty in some way. Was that like another thing that was a consideration?
1: Yeah. And I think probably other people who are wiser than I am were worried about that. But I just love history so much that I'm kind of blinded by like, why would anyone think this is just a a trinket? But I think it was very much of a risk. It's nice to be, you know, ignorance is bliss. It's it's great to not have that perspective. And I think the The fact that we're still drinking Sypes beer this year is an indication that that other people found it to be something that they wanted to try more than just once, which I'm very appreciative of. And I think that it's just really important to recognize that people all of us just i think and i hate to generalize for anybody else but i will say that the idea of of a place and sort of a community and belonging to something is a really nice feeling pretty like universally that's generally something that brings people joy And so I think that what is so remarkable about Chicago is that it can be a place for everybody who comes here, whether you live here, whether you've immigrated here, whether you've immigrated out of here, it's full of problems. We can all work on solving them together. I think that we don't have to be in the past or the present. We can sort of acknowledge that it is this beast that keeps moving, that we can all be part of. And that's what I want Sipes to be, which is I want it to be remembering where we come from, feeling like we are from a place and learning from that place and going forward and and doing good things with our time.
0: Some of the beers that have been brought forward as a part of that brand are the Extra Pale, which I think most Chicago drinkers are familiar with now. That's a pre-Prohibition style Pilsner. And then there was also a Bach that came out earlier this year, the Columbia. And I'm going to read the quote from the promotional souvenir because I love how people described things in advertising back in the day. Very dark in color of unusual strength. Now, imagine unusual being used in contemporary advertising and promoting. That would be very faux pas. And so that would have been consumed around the World's Fair in 1893. Why did you choose? I mean, I think it's pretty obvious, the extra pale. And you mentioned that that was one that you tried. To create first in a homebrew context, but why the Columbia and what sort of like other beers were there? to choose from?
1: There are a bunch of other beers to choose from, which is awesome because it means that we can make a bunch more beers. Um, it also means that it's a little bit hard to choose what we were going to do after the extra pail. The extra pail was an obvious choice, A, because Doug was excited about making it, B, because it was um, Conrad Sipes, one of his most prolific beers from an advertising standpoint, for sure. And we also knew that we were going to be launching probably in the summer months and probably people like to drink, just the market, people like to drink lighter beers, especially when it's hot outside. So that one made a lot of sense. It was harder to come up with the second one. I knew that I wanted to do the Columbia because of I really wanted to celebrate Chicago's resilience. And if you think about the World's Fair, it was pretty amazing that Chicago was able to pull that off. Their city had come like our city, it was burnt down just 20 years before. And then 20 years later they invited the whole world to come and hang out in this like pretty fantastic setting where everyone was invited to bring their latest and greatest stuff and just celebrate what Chicago had rebuilt, essentially. And that is amazing. It's just really, I think the World's Fair was a monument to Chicago's resilience, if I may be so egocentric about Chicago. That was a huge thing, and it, it should be celebrated. So we released this on March 4th, which is Chicago's birthday. And I wanted to release it then because I wanted this beer to basically be like a celebration of Chicago's resilience. And in no way were we through the pandemic at that point, in no way were we through the social strife that we've been going through as a country and as a city, but we were making it through. And it was a a reminder that like Chicago, we go through tough stuff and we get through it. it. May take some time. We're not through it yet but let's celebrate that resilience everywhere and the hard work everywhere that goes into being able to do that kind of work. It was a very clear, symbolic message that I wanted to send. I mean, not send, I'm I'm not sending these messages to, (laughs) it was something that, I wanted to make sure it was marked, is I'll put it that way. And then we came into the challenge of figuring out, well, then what is the Columbia? Yes, it was at the World's Fair, I'm sure, because of the name. I mean, I just don't think a German dude, actually, at that point, he had passed away. But a German company um, was going to be like, I know, let's name our beer the Columbia, unless they were naming it for like in honor of the Columbian Exposition. But I could be wrong. That's just my guess. What was what kind of beer were we going to make? And so with the Metro team and Liz and me, we just sat around and thought about it for a while we knew that it was dark and of unusual strength. And that really screams Bach. It could also scream other things too. It could have been a Dunkel. It could have been, you know, we, we could have made it work for other things. But I think the Bach really made sense, especially because Bachs are really, there's so much language in the 19th century around beer being like an elixir for like they use words like invalids and restorer of health. And like there's this real medicinal push, which is so crazy when you think about beer advertising now, which is absolutely, and. Um, You would never say anything like that, nor is any of that really true. But that was always very much associated with Bach beers. And so we recognized, all right, it's clear, extra, you know, of unusual strength and and dark in color. And also, it's just fun to drink Bach's. And there weren't that many other Bach's around. So we were like, let's go for it. Liz Garibay, always was Team Bach, by the way. I really want to make sure we give her credit. Um, <laughs> whereas I'm much more of a waffler. I think Doug was pretty clear on the Bach too. But we just said, let's do this. And we got pulled together a, a, a label, which I think made a lot of sense um, using the label from the World's Fair booklet. And we launched the Bach, which I think is delicious. And I'm happy to say that I think others like it too, which is good.
0: Yeah. And I think the springtime makes sense within the context of Bach beers historically. You would see them lagered over the colder months and being released earlier in the year and in Chicago with our torrid summers. That would also make sense to a certain extent. And there's also a lot of like crossover with religion and all of that too that plays into some of the lore of Bach. So I think it made sense for a lot of reasons. And it's just a cool way, I think, to celebrate the city's past. I'm curious about some of the. The other beers that may have been in discussion or were passed up?
1: Saip had his own or should we say we pressed pause on them? <laughs> we'll make them. We just went with the Columbia first and we're gonna now think about what to make next. and so maybe you've got some good ideas you can weigh in. So Sype had quite a few beers that were made by the Conradside Brewing Company. And then in the late 1880s, or in the 1880s, I should say, he acquired the West Side Brewing Company, which had another host of brands. that had really romantic names. Nectar is like one of the like words and one of the names, which I think is always sounds delicious. It's like ambrosia. So there are a lot of different brands to choose from. I feel like I could say a solid... And it's tough because there was so much, the marketing then was pretty confusing. It's hard to say, like, what was sort of a remake of what? And when did they just throw this, you know, name to make things more appealing? But I'd say that the Sconrad Side Brewing Company had at least five or six brands that I would definitely know were being made. And then the acquisition of the West Side Brewing Company added on an additional five. So there are lots of beers to choose from and we have the the fun and also the can be very full of consternation of trying to figure out which brand we want to make and then how we want to present it from an artistic perspective. And I don't mean to sound I'm not trying to pose as an artist, but you one does have to recognize that we're not working from original recipes. And so there is an element of art in this and that we're trying to figure out. What would be appealing to people and to us? And so there's a beer called the Hollander, which has the beautiful, beautiful imagery. I think the big yellow wooden shoe, which I would love to make at some point. There's a beer called the Bavarian, which I think is an interesting idea. There's one which I love the name because it's so bad. It's called the Malt Sinew. I mean, doesn't that just make you want to pull that off the shelf? <laughs> but that was a very low ABV beer. And I think that's interesting. The idea of, you know, the the market for low ABV beers, none of our, you know, obviously lagers are not necessarily super high in alcohol, but just going even lower, like a, a table beer, I think is an interesting idea. He also made a Salvatore which is super annoying since Polliner basically said that only their beers can be called Salvatore, which is a bummer because we're not going to make the Salvatore. We might call it something else, which wouldn't be quite as fun. But I think that was another one of his very, very much... I think that was a beer that he really shipped out a lot outside of Chicago. And then he did a lot of exports. And as I need to learn more about beer history, but that was an indication that the beer just was whatever the beer it was. And then it had a higher hop content in order to export it to wherever it was going similar to how we ended up with IPAs. So I think that's an interesting concept, too, of making a beer and then considering it as an
0: export. That's interesting just sort of to think about what export meant then and then how are we going to take that idea, which is like really specific and built around a lot of ideas about even with a refrigerated railroad car, there is still like time and imperfections that are acknowledged in the construction of those beers now with things happening a lot quicker and with actually like, a, probably a smaller footprint that this beer would cover because the railroad's already built out west now. How are you going to reimagine that idea? Like, It's very uh, interesting. And even like the export, there's a little history of the export idea actually changing in contemporary times. So it's cool. I mean, these are great challenges to have, I think. Zooming out a little bit and kind of taking this like broader picture here. How has your view of Conrad kind of changed over time now that like you had an idea when you were younger? You've gone through all of these like different ways of looking at him and the things that he did, looking at the impact that he had in his community and in the business that he was in in the city. I would imagine have a much more nuanced perspective now. I guess kind of what are some of the things that, like, is it still romantic in the way that it may have been when you were younger, like what sort of colors your perspective and how it's changed.
1: I feel so much closer to this person. I don't know him at all. It's all conjecture. But for whatever reason, I mean I often find myself saying, what would Conrad do? You know what Conrad would do? He'd put his beer in cans. Because if cans had existed when he was brewing beer, that was a great way to to package beer. And so I really sort of see him as like a consultant. And, and just try and guess what he would think would make sense. I think he was a really open-hearted, good person from what I've learned and from what I've learned from his family members as to who they are. And I think that's a really, that's how I want to be. I want to be someone who is forward-looking and who's making good decisions for what makes sense for his, his family and his company, but who's also just really open-hearted. I just have a tremendous respect for what he did. I think that leaving your home no matter what is scary. He left his continent, came to a new place. Like in that regard, so many immigrants doing the exact same thing. Coming to a place where he didn't know any English, probably. Raising a family, several of whom died because of childhood illnesses. His first brewery burnt down. I mean, that's got to suck when you're just, you know, a year into brewing. He built back a bigger, stronger brewery with bricks, just like in the Three Little Pigs. His business partner just was in a, like, basically the equivalent of a car accident. He was in a terrible buggy accident and was killed his whole city burnt down. I mean, the civil war was going on. The guy had a lot of really hard stuff that I had no idea as a child was happening in his life. And I can only imagine all the stuff that did happen that I don't know about. So I think it's always really important to recognize that you know, if you can't just look at the like fairy tale story of immigrant comes, immigrant makes a lot of beer, immigrant has a nice life. It's not that easy. And I I think that I really understand that now and and really respect what he went through and what so many people have just gone through trying to make their way in the world. I also think it's kind of weird that we don't talk more like we talk about Bush. We talk about Pabst. We talk about Miller. Why don't we talk more about Chicago's brewing history? This is such an incredible brewing capital. And I think that was actually, that is a big part of why I wanted to bring the brewing company back is that it just didn't seem quite right that all these other cities had this like very real connection from the past to the present. We have this incredible brewing culture and scene presently in Chicago. But what we were missing was that connection to the past. And I felt like that was one contribution I could make was help to fill that gap and really celebrate Chicago and what it has meant for the brewing. You know, the world really um, is one of the world's leaders, I think, in brewing.
0: I think so. That's actually like a really interesting perspective because, you know, Chicago has... Produced So many talented brewers since the craft revolution, if we can call it with the Siebel Institute and Goose Island being like a factory for people that have gone on to do pretty incredible things, both there and then in their own facilities or later in their career. And Siebel is a, no doubt, like a fantastic link to the past and to Europe as well. But until recently, obviously, there was no link to the brewing past. Like so much of it comes through the culinary lens, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah, so true.
0: That's a really valuable part of this brand and for people's opportunity to get like a little bit of a window into the past. It's also like a pretty big responsibility in some way.
1: Yeah, I think it is a big responsibility when you think about it. What sort of things do you think about as far as what that
0: means? In some respects, I think that because it's a brand that has an interrupted history, unlike Pabst, for example, or some of the other larger breweries, there is an opportunity to pick and choose the things that you want to share that are a part of it. And those choices that we've spent a little bit of time talking about are not just like tactical decisions in marketing and storytelling, but also thinking about like being true to history and history changing. There's just a whirlwind of things that I think of when it comes to what are the things from the past that you're choosing to bring and then how are you interpreting them today? Using history is always like just a very taxing thing in some way. Maybe I'm just not the right person for it because I get bogged down way too much in thinking about how change over time and change in perceptions over time colors how we look at things now. I think that the aspect of it being an interrupted history creates a very unique opportunity, but also its own challenges because of the interruption in record keeping.
1: Yeah, it's a really big interruption. And I really appreciate what you're saying about the responsibility. And I think something that interruption afforded was Conrad Seip had six daughters who survived and he had two sons and the sons died And they died pretty early. So there was really no one. I think that was another big factor. There was prohibition, but there was also just no sons around to run the company. And in those days, women just weren't really running factories. There were, I'm sure there were certainly women that were running factories. And I'm sure they were running factories. They just weren't given credit for it. But I can't help but wonder you know, what would have happened if things had been different and one of the daughters had been allowed or had pair had wanted or had stepped up. And I don't know if they were even really allowed to step up at that point. Um, what would have happened? Would Sipes have continued as some of these other brands that did continue? And so I think in a way, it's just the de facto that now women can restart brewing companies and women can run breweries and, Women can do whatever the hell they want with, of course, barriers and challenges. But I think that's one of the things that's made it so special being able to do this project with Liz Garibay and with Tracy Hurst is that we are women who are making this happen. And in no way am I trying to say that men aren't wonderful and important, too. But in the brewing community, there are are just fewer women. Um, And I think that that will change. And so that has been something that has been very special. And I think that history has afforded us that ability to say things are different than they were in 1905. We're going to do this now.
0: Exactly. And I think like we were saying earlier, there's good reasons to not want to go back to that time, too. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think what your point about the responsibility is, is it's also a responsibility to say things aren't like that anymore, too. And that's just as important as saying, let's think about what things were like. That's why we have to keep track of history so we don't screw it up again.
0: That's fantastic. I think that's actually like a a pretty good point to sort of close on here. Do you have any sort of thoughts for the audience as we wrap up here?
1: I just so appreciate the fact that people are interested in this story, this beer themselves, like... Thanks, everybody. Thanks for drinking or trying or not, or just knowing about sites, whether you're drinking or not. It doesn't change my gratitude. And I really want to thank you, Alexi. I think it's just so great to be able to have conversations like this and to think more deeply about beer and beer history and just who we are as people. So thank you for this.
0: Thank you. I appreciate it. And all the things that you do for history and for beer in Chicago, it's extremely important. Well, cheers to that. Cheers to that.